You are listening to audio from Central Baptist Church in Mansfield, Texas. If you would like to get more involved or get more information about our church, stick around after the message. Okay, so last week, does anybody remember the title of last week's? The Bible is not a book. What is the Bible? Okay, collection, that's good. What did I call it? The Bible is a library. Yes. How many books are in the Bible? 66. How many in the New Testament? 27. In the Old, there is 39. 39. Um, so that's what we talked about last week. And the purpose is um, we're, we're trying to get you foundationally set to just get in the Bible. I've been there before, um, trying to read the Bible and just being as lost as, uh, you know, driving through the backwoods in western Texas, you know what I'm talking about. Um, you know, you don't know which way to go. Um, and that can be frustrating. And if it gets too frustrating, I mean, we could put down our Bible and not pick it up again, right? Um, and so foundationally, there's not a beginning to a library. You know, you don't start in book one and end at a certain book. It's not numbered one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. No, it's the book is it's a library. So if you wanted to tonight, hey, I'm going to read my Bible. And you wanted to start in the Gospel of John. What, that's the 43rd book in the Bible. That's perfectly fine. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, if you're a new believer, I think that is one of the perfect places to start. Gospel of John is easy. Um, it's about Jesus. I mean, obviously, you can't get better than that. Um, so it's a good place. It's foundational. Um, so um, that's the place to start. We're talking about apologetics. but uh, uh, Now, does anybody know what apologetics means? It means just to defend something. Um, and so we're trying to understand the Bible so we can then defend the Bible. So I gave you some homework. I know some of you weren't there. But you're welcome to offer opinions. This is where we're going to talk. For those watching online, I'll do my best to fill you in on what people say. Um, the first thing of homework is a rather long question. I ask in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. So in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Um, Jesus writes seven different letters to churches. Now, I, we mean that quite literally. If you have a red letter edition of the Bible... And you turn to Revelation 2 and Revelation 3, those will be in red. Why? Because it's Jesus' words. It wasn't transcribed. I don't know how Jesus sent it, <laughs> but it got there. It was from Jesus himself. He writes seven different churches. Some interpret that these seven different churches represent seven specific time frames or ages for the church throughout church history. Um, you have the first church that he writes to is Ephesus. And some say that was from the day of Pentecost to the year 100. Then you have Smyrna from year 100 to 312. From, and then Pergamos, 313 through 590. Finally, you end at Laodicea. And you go from the year 1900 until the rapture. So I ask, is this a biblical way to interpret these seven letters to these seven churches? Why or why not? What a question. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it can be tough yeah I agree anybody want to just take a stab 
It's okay. I mean, if you don't want me to say it on the YouTube, I don't have to. <laughs> Anybody want to take a stab? Okay, so that's very good. She says that they're applicable to all churches at all times. That's really good. Um, and um, so I really like that answer. Um, so that wouldn't be um, just Ephesus for that 100 years or less than 100 years. Um, and it wouldn't be Laodicea just for 1900 to the rapture. And so um, I would agree. I do not think. So where this comes from is from um, what is called dispensationalist. Has anybody ever heard of that term? Dispensationalist. And they try to um, fragment some of church history into specifics. But the problems with this is, so, you know, if you read the seven letters, there are some differences where, you know, Ephesus was good at works, but they had left, left their first love. Um, Smyrna was one of the only... I think two churches that didn't get any words of condemnation from Jesus. Um, and then Laodicea is obviously, the, at least by our standards, the worst church that Jesus writes to. Um, and if you try to just typecast that into specific ages, you're really limiting God's word. Um, and what you'll find is, this is important, and I think dispensationalists, kind of fall under this as well. It's a very Americanized theology. Um, what, it, what I'm saying is, some people will say, okay, well, that's the church from these specific years. The problem is that there are churches like Ephesus today who are great at working but have lost their passion, right? There are churches like Smyrna today. I mean, think of the church in... Um, the church in China. I mean, we looked at it this morning. Um, there are churches like Pergamos today and Thyatira and Sardis, and there's most certainly in the United States of America churches like Laodicea. But that could have been said of every age since the book of Revelation was written. There are churches just like this for all different ages. Um, so I would say that is a, almost like a preaching mechanism to get people to pay attention. And that's all it's good for. Um, so one thing I want you to do through this series, through this series, what I hope is that you'll be hard on preachers. What I mean is don't let us just preach anything we want. It should come from the Bible. And there should be a biblical basis. One thing that this doesn't have, any, have anything, it doesn't have any biblical basis. Nowhere does it say in Jesus' letters, that Ephesus is just for this age, or Smyrna is just for this age. It is something that a preacher made up 150 years ago. And then some people have taken it and ran. And that is a dangerous thing. Even though this is not terribly important one way or the other, it's a dangerous practice to start. Okay, so I asked another question. This one probably was a little bit easier to figure out because you can look at the Bible. Um, to the church of Laodicea, Jesus says that the church is lukewarm. Revelation chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. 
and that he would prefer that the church is either cold or hot. Does that mean God would rather a Christian be cold in their relationship with him than lukewarm? Ooh. So, this is a question that if you were living in Laodicea at the time would be very easy to answer. But we are almost 2,000 years removed, and it's a little bit more difficult. So, what say you? Does that mean God would rather us be cold than lukewarm? Okay. 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 Yes. So Anne said that she would, because um, then it would be easier to grow. Uh, you'd be, um, you know, it's easier for kids to grow. So then it would be easier for someone that is cold to get hot. Okay. Anybody else? Okay. Okay. So, man, Miss Miss Cheryl's preaching next Sunday. <laughs> so, go ahead. Okay. Amen. Amen. So, okay, okay, all right, so um, I've grown up in church, my dad's a pastor, and if there was ever a preacher meeting, the preacher boy <laughs> got to go, and so this is a pretty popular passage to hear it preached. And so hearing this passage preached was similar to some of what you said, um, that God, and they would say, it's better to go backwards in your faith than to stay where you are. Can I tell you? That's not scriptural. Now, I think some of you hit the nail on the head. So I said, if you were to live back then, it would be easy to tell. This is where having the right, not just Bible, but Bible study tools will really help. And I have a bunch in my office that you are welcome to use and borrow, or I can even give to you if you like them. Um, so, 
Laodicea. Does anybody know where Laodicea was in the old world? It was located right in the middle of a valley. Right dead set in the valley. To the east was Hierapolis. Hierapolis was known for hot springs. They had, I mean, just wonderful. People, all the, the, the Caesars were known to go to Hierapolis because of the hot springs there. To the west, some 10 miles, was Colossi. Colossi was known for their very cold water. They were up closer to the mountains. They had springs that came up, and the springs were very cold. Laodicea had no water. There was not a source of water. The closest sources of water were Hierapolis and Colossi. So what they did was they built above-ground aqueducts. They built one to Hierapolis, and they built one to Colossi. They tried Hierapolis first because it was closer. But they found that once the water that was hot in Hierapolis got to Laodicea, what do you think it was? Lukewarm. That cold water in Colossi, 10 miles away, after they tried Hierapolis and it failed, what was it when it got from the cold water up in the mountains down to Laodicea, 10 miles away in the valley? <laughs> Lukewarm. So what God is saying, I believe, and I believe scripture backs this up, is that cold water serves a purpose. Hot water serves a purpose. Lukewarm dishwater makes you sick. Right? And isn't that what God said? That he would spew them out? The word spew doesn't mean to spit. It means to retch. Right? Um, and so the hot water is now lukewarm. The cold water is now lukewarm. And they're left with something that is good for nothing. What God is really saying? Hey, Laodicean church, where are you at now? You are good for nothing. Whoa. <laughs> Could you imagine God look, writing us a letter tomorrow? We get in the mail this week. Can I stand up and read it to you? And it says first that God wants to throw us up. <laughs> and then that we're good for nothing. Ooh, man, I'd be convicted. I believe that's what that is saying. So in this regard with Laodicea, I ask another question. In Revelation 3.20, Jesus pictures himself standing at a door and knocking. Many preachers declare that the door is in our hearts and picture Jesus knocking to be welcomed into our hearts for salvation. Is this a valid interpretation of this verse? Why or why not? Okay. Okay, very good. She said it's more about a Christian in their heart than about a lost person in theirs. All right. Not for salvation. Okay. Cheryl said it's an opportunity for someone to repent and ask Jesus to come back in. Very good. Anyone else? Okay.
Okay. So I added this question on purpose because it has to do with what we're talking about tonight. Who is the author of the letter to the Laodiceans? I just answered the second question. <laughs> Who was the author of that letter? It was a letter written by Jesus. Yeah, Jesus wrote it. Who did he write the letter to? More specifically, of the Laodicean church. Yes, members of the Laodicean church. So what should that tell us? about where he's knocking. And I think this kind of backs up my major point from this morning. This isn't just an individual. This is a corporate body. Where the ch- he's knocking on this specific church and saying, hey, let me back in. They need to repent. It's not about salvation. It's about repentance, but not just me, about us. Listen to me, church. I don't, I think it should scare us half to death that we can have a church service and not have Jesus. If we don't have Jesus, we're not a church. We need to make sure we have Jesus. Um, So, there we go. That leads us to our study tonight. If you have your handout, that's where we'll begin. I got some doozies for you for homework this coming week, too. And you get half the time as last time. Have you ever had a skeptic or an atheist tell you that Christians don't really follow the Bible? I mean, I've had that said to me a hundred times. They'll say something like, you pick and choose what you want to believe. You claim to follow the Bible, they'll say, while you cherry pick which parts to obey. In one way, the skeptic is right. Some Christians really do cherry pick certain parts to obey and not. I know some Christians who have been Christians and really, um, there's no reason to doubt it, except they have a hard time forgiving someone, even though that's in the Bible. I know some Christians, and I'll be honest with you, they're the meanest people I know. (laughs) I'm trying to figure out a different way to say it. (laughs) Um, But the Bible teaches us to be kind, right? But this isn't, that's not what the skeptics are saying. They're usually referring to verses like Matthew 7, 1, judge not, or passages in the Old Testament specifically that have to do with homosexuality. I usually reply with something like this. You're right. We do cherry pick what we believe and follow. I know why I cherry pick certain parts of the Bible, obey certain parts of the Bible, while ignoring, not really ignoring, but not following other parts of the Bible. May I ask you, and then I always ask them, Do you know why? There was a a girl in my youth department at Southwest Baptist Church. She was 13, 14. Justin Bieber had just gotten really popular. And obviously, I love Justin Bieber. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Um, 
and he put something on Facebook. This was before Instagram. And she was a follower of his on Facebook. And she came up to me after a Wednesday night service and said, Justin Bieber and I are going to start dating. And I asked, really? And I didn't really know a lot about Justin Bieber at the time. Um, and I asked, you know, I clarified who it was. And then she, uh, we began to talk. And I said, how, how do you know him? How do you think you're going to start dating? And she pulled up Facebook. And she showed me a post on Facebook. And I'll just be honest with you. A lot of what I'm talking about tonight will help a lot of us on social media, too. <laughs> it's not always about you, okay? Um, um, but she showed me this post, and it was some, I think it was a chorus to one of his songs. I'm not really sure. And, but I told her, I said, sweetheart, that post has nothing to do with you. It wasn't written about you or to you. He just wrote the lyrics of his songs. Listen, that song isn't about her. It had nothing to do with her. Um, and Christian, we can't take words that were written to someone else and claim them to be our own. If we saw someone doing that today, like that young lady with Facebook, taking something that was written to someone else and then claiming it as their own, we would say they need to get help. Maybe a counselor. Yet Christians, hear me, do that every single day with the Bible. Every day. Justin Bieber didn't know who that girl was. This is a common problem with Christians, especially Oh, I did not put this in your handout, especially in the United States of America. Um, has anybody ever heard of a interpretation error known as eisegesis? Anybody? Eisegesis is the interpretation of the Bible by reading into it one's own ideas, self, or context. So instead of us going into the Bible and going into that context, we put the Bible into our life and our context. The Bible wasn't written to the United States of America in 2022. This happens a lot in the United States today. I think I did put this in there. Um, we do it with Bible characters and we do it with our country. Do I, did I give you Revelation 12, 14? Is it in your handout somewhere? Man, let's turn there real quick. It's the last book of the Bible. It should be easy to find. So Christians in America are known for trying to find the United States of America in the Bible. Give you an interpretation help. The United States of America is nowhere in the Bible. Revelation 12, 14 says, and to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle. <laughs> Do you see where this is going? <laughs> what is the bird of the United States of America? The eagle. And some have uh, interpreted this to mean that God is talking about the United States of America just because he happens to bring up an eagle. Obviously, 
This is eisegesis through and through. Here's another one. Think about how we do this with Bible characters. I, what did I preach about last Sunday morning? Help me. We had the family Sunday. Old Testament Bible story. Famous. David versus Goliath. You know how most of us interpret that Bible story? I'm David, and i got to fight my giants. Can I be honest with you? None of us are David. <laughs> We're more like the people in the crowd shaking in our boots. You know who David is in that story? It's Jesus. <laughs> what is this? It's eisegesis. We do this all the time. Um, uh, we, we do this with uh, Peter. We do this with Paul. We do this with all of these characters in the Bible. We make ourselves the hero. We make our country into, we put it into the Bible, but it's not the case historically. We do this with much of the rest of the Bible. We see promises, commands that were written to other people, but claim them as our own. We do this with 2 Chronicles 7.14, for instance. We just assume that since they are in the Bible, that means it must be for me and all other Christians today. We read the Bible as if we are the intended audience. As if all of the words in this library were written directly to Andrew Hayward. This is another example of how Christians start behind the eight ball when trying to defend God's word. I know some of you are wondering, when are we going to get to defend the Bible and God and our faith? I promise that we will get there. But more important than me teaching you facts to defend the Bible with it, what it is teaching and how you go about getting your own facts, um, more, more importantly is you being able to find them on your own. Let's face it. There are more ways the enemy is attacking our faith. There's more ways that the enemy is attacking God's word than I could ever prepare you for. I could talk for the, every Sunday night for the rest of my life. I still wouldn't cover them all. There just isn't enough time. But if I can show you how to find the answers all on your own, no matter what the devil or an atheist throws at you, you will be able to defend the Bible, your faith, and grow there. So the main idea today, I think I have this in there. Do I have this in your handout? Main idea. The Bible is written for us, but it wasn't written to us. That's an important distinction. That small statement has massive implications on how you read, interpret, and apply God's word. A hundred percent. Listen to me. A hundred percent, Genesis to Revelation, Old Testament, New Testament, was written for your benefit. But zero percent of the Bible was written to you. You are not meant to obey every command in the Bible. There are things in the Bible God doesn't expect you to do. He doesn't even intend for you to try to do. Important principle. Every single verse in the Bible was written to a specific person or a specific group of people. Let's read. 1 Peter chapter 1. Look with me at, I believe this is right. 
That is not right. I think I did this this morning in my notes for some. It's Second Peter, y'all. <laughs> so Second Peter one. So we check the notes with what's on the screen every Sunday morning. At least we try to before the services for this one reason, especially when it's a First Corinthians or a Second Corinthians or First Peter or a Second Peter. It's Second Peter. Look at verse twenty. Knowing this first that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. Oh, man, that's important. Please understand. The worst thing when you're trying to interpret the Bible, and you should look out for preachers that say this, uh, teachers that say this, is when they open up the word and say, this, uh, this passage means this to me. I mean, that's as different as every person. What does the Bible really mean? There's a way to get to the real, real truth. It's not my opinion. It's what the Bible teaches. Okay? Verse 21. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. Look what it says. But holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. What does this mean? Remember, I said this a little bit last week. We didn't get the Bible... Like Joseph Smith got the Book of Mormon, at least how he claims he got it. It didn't just float down from heaven with an angel and he was handed it. No, that's not how the Bible came. God worked through individuals, men and women, and got out the Bible. Okay? Um, they literally wrote, you can see different styles of writing in every different time there's a different author. You can see different words used, different vocabulary. It's not all the same. And the reason it's not all the same is because it comes from different sources over thousands of years to different people. This is an important principle. Every book in the Bible has an author or authors. Human beings were moved by the Holy Spirit to write down God's word. Also, every book in the Bible has a specific audience. A group of people, sometimes just a person. Every book was written by a real person who lived at a specific time and place. Every book was delivered to a group of people or a person who lived at a specific time and place. Understanding this point is fundamental to understanding the Bible, and putting into practice will help shape the way you study your Bible. So, I have some questions. I hope you write down the answers on your handout. Who wrote, this should be at least a little easy, who wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, the letter of Acts? Luke. Now, just so you know, Luke was not an apostle. Not an apostle. A lot of people think Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were apostles. Only two of them are apostles. Anybody want to wager, say who? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John's an apostle. And... Matthew. Luke was a um, disciple of Paul. I'm sorry, Luke was a disciple of, yeah, Paul. And Mark was a disciple of Peter. Um, so they were second generation Christians, so to speak. Um, now the question is, who did Luke write those books to? The Bible actually tells us. It gives us, now it tells us most specifically in Acts, but 
who was the intended audience? We know from the book of Acts that the Gospel of Luke and Acts were written to one man. It had a really awesome name. I wanted to name Parker this, but my wife said no. His name was Theophilus. <laughs> yes, Stephanie. <laughs> Pray for my wife. I think that's what we get from that little statement. <laughs> a man named Theophilus. So this was just written to a man who was not a believer to help him believe what Jesus had done. So the audience was just a single man, a man named Theophilus. Who wrote the letter of Philemon? Paul. Paul wrote Philemon. Who was the audience? Who did Paul write to? Again, that one, I'm not burying the lead at all, I promise. <laughs> a man named Philemon. Yes. Do you know the story? He had a slave runaway named Onesimus. Philemon was the slave owner, and Paul is writing to him to accept Onesimus back as a brother, not a slave. How about this one? Who wrote the Psalms? Now that's a question. <laughs> Asaph was in there, David was in there, Moses was. It had a, there's a many different authors for Psalms. There's not just one. Who was the audience? As many as there are different authors, there are different audiences. Um, and some of the audiences weren't others necessarily. Some of them were just in a journal that found their way into God's word. All right. How about who wrote the book of Galatians, the letter of Galatians? Paul. Yes. In fact, if you want an extra credit, that is the very first letter that Paul wrote. At least that's in the Bible. The audience would have been the church in Galatia. Now, this is not in your handout. I have been going through a series on canonicity. Canonicity is the study of how books got in your Bible, why there are some that aren't in there, why these are here. And I've learned more in the last six months on it than I have in my previous 38 years. So um, one of the books is the Gospel of John. Do you realize the Gospel of John? More than likely was penned by John, but was a collective work between John, Andrew, Thomas, and probably Philip. Isn't that interesting? John was the one that wrote it and probably filled in a lot of the details since he was the disciple that Jesus loved. But there are some stories that would have been very hard for John to know, and they believe they came from other apostles as well. This is an important study for a lot of reasons. Um, we need to know the author and we need to know the audience to understand certain parts of the Bible. Think about the Sabbath day. I think I had this in your handout. Do you know a denomination of Christianity that is adamant about meeting on Saturdays instead of Sundays? Seventh-day Adventist. If you go to, where is that college at? Someone help me. It's not far from here. Keen, yeah, I mean, yeah, they're, that's the entire town, right? <laughs> um, and not only do they follow that, they do their best to follow the Old Testament dietary standards. Now, to their credit, they're usually pretty healthy. Um, so, have you ever wondered why we worship on Sundays 
while they worship and are adamant about worshiping on Saturdays. I think I have it in your handout. Oh, I, I have this too. Who was the when was the Sabbath day rested? What book? What was it? When was it commanded? It was commanded in Exodus, specifically in the Ten Commandments. Who wrote the book of Exodus? Moses. And obviously, they're more than likely Moses. Um, uh, who was it written to? Anybody know? Who was it written to? The children of Israel. All right. Who wrote the Ten Commandments? The first time. Very good. Who was it written for? That's a more difficult question. But initially, for, specifically, the Israelites. So that should tell us at least something. Exodus 20, verse 8 says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Okay, the Sabbath day, it means rest, it's the rest day. If you read the entire passage, verses 9, 10, and 11, it obviously is talking about the last day of the week. So why don't we worship on Saturdays? Well, the rest of Exodus kind of gives us some clues. I give you Exodus 31, 16, and 17, Wherefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations, for a perpetual covenant, it is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. The Old Testament gives us the answer. In fact, the exact same book gives us the answer. Who was the Sabbath day for? The children of Israel. The New Testament backs up this point. Romans 14.5 says, One man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. What does that mean? That means that we are free to worship God as a church any, way, any day we please to. If we could come together and say, hey, you know what? I'd rather do it on Saturday. And if we all agreed to do that as one church body, there'd be nothing wrong with me on Saturdays. In fact... There are some churches that don't have a church building that have to meet on Saturdays because they borrow another church's building. So, are they wrong in doing it on a Saturday? Of course not. In fact, Colossians, Paul goes a little further. He says in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon or on the Sabbath day, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. The Sabbath was just a shadow of finding real rest in the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus said it, Matthew 11, verse 28, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. What does he say? I will give you rest. Rest is found in him, not in a day. Now, there are principles that we can apply, sure. But the Sabbath day keeping was for Old Testament Israel, not New Testament believers. Okay, so I give you a whole bunch there. I'm going to let you read that on your own. I think that will help you. 
because we're running out of time. I want to get through the rest of this tonight. Um, Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 17. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. There were 613 commands in the Old Testament. Woo, can you imagine? Some of them were ceremonial. Some were civil. Others are moral. How do we know which of these 613 commands we are supposed to follow? Here's a few questions you can ask yourself. Here are a few points. I give them to you. Number one, what does the New Testament say about this Old Testament command? If you want to know if there's an Old Testament command that we had to follow today, one of the easiest ways to know is if the New Testament talks about it. The New Testament will give you instructions on what you find in the Old Testament. Old Testament commands are always interpreted. Hear me, every last one of them. Old Testament commands are always interpreted in light of New Testament teaching. Every last one. If you find something hard to understand in the Old Testament, look to the New Testament to find a clear teaching on the matter. The New Testament will do one of a few things with the Old Testament laws. Letter A. The New Testament may repeal an Old Testament law. And we should say amen for some of these. I only give up one example, but I'm really glad it got repealed. An Old Testament that existed until the an Old Testament law that existed until the New Testament says you don't have to do that anymore. And there's a lot of examples. For example, probably my favorite is the prohibition in the Old Testament against eating pork. In fact, the, old, the prohibition in the Old Testament wasn't just to eat it. Israel wasn't even allowed to farm them. They weren't allowed to have any pigs in their farms at all. Leviticus 11.7 says, And the swine, though he divide the hoof and be, not, and be cloven-footed, yet he cheweth not the cud, he is unclean to you. That means the Israelites could eat no pork chops, no bacon, no ham. Can you imagine? How do you have a good breakfast without bacon and ham? But if you jump over to the New Testament, one of the most monumental shifting passages is Acts chapter 10. Peter gets a vision. There's a man named Cornelius that wants him to come over and preach the gospel to them. Peter is given a vision by God on whether he should go. What is the vision? There's a huge sheet. I don't know why it's a sheet. It's a sheet. And on this sheet are all of the animals that they were not allowed to eat. God tells him, come and eat. Peter says, no, they're unclean to me. And God says, don't declare anything unclean that I have made clean. Obviously, the initial reaction is that, okay, that means Cornelius, who was a Gentile, could now hear the gospel. But the underlying teaching and then the practice of the early church was certain that what was on the sheet was now good to eat. Maybe that's why it was a sheet, so it would rhyme with eat. I don't know. <laughs> but they could eat it because it was on the sheet. 
So an Old Testament law has now been repealed by the New Testament teaching. I mean, that's a big deal. Could you imagine the infighting that this would cause? Um, other ones that were repealed, obviously the Sabbath day, um, uh, the circumcision of all male worshipers, that's no longer under, and then a whole bunch of others. Letter B, the New Testament will ignore an Old Testament law. This is more often than not. I mean, there's 613 of them, right? There's no way it can cover them all. I give you one, and this is a really random one. I did that on purpose. Deuteronomy 22.8 says this, When thou buildest a new house, then thou shalt make a battlement for thy roof, that thou bring not blood upon thine house, if any man fall from thence. What is a battlement? A battlement is simply a railing. That's all it was. Houses in that day were built with um, a place on top where they could hang out, fellowship, eat dinner, have company over. Um, they wouldn't have had, you know, uh, patios in the backyard. They would have had these roofs. And so since they were on the roof socializing, um, they didn't want people to fall off the side of the roof, so they commanded to build a railing. Now, I'm not going to come to your house tomorrow and make sure you have a railing along the side of your roof. Why? Because that was obviously a command for an Old Testament time and place. The New Testament doesn't talk about Deuteronomy 22.8 at all. I'm going to guess that most of you didn't even know Deuteronomy 22.8 existed. <laughs> to your credit, if you would have asked me what Deuteronomy 22.8 said yesterday, I probably would have said I have no idea. <laughs> but it proves a point. That most of the time, the New Testament ignores it. So what do we do when the New Testament ignores Old Testament commands? We leave it up to individual believers in their conscience. 100%. If it's not commanded in the New Testament, and it is commanded in the Old Testament, and there's obviously, listen, there's probably some exceptions to this. I haven't thought through that 100%. But most of the time... We're going to uh, let individual believers go by the conscience that God has given to them. Okay? Letter C. An Old Testament command is elevated in the New Testament. Jesus was known for doing this. i give you two examples. The Ten Commandments say, Thou shalt not kill. But Jesus makes it even harder. Matthew 5, 21 and 22 in the um, Sermon on the Mount, he says this, Ye have heard that it was said of them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall uh, be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. So Jesus said it's not just the act, right? It's the attitude behind the act it's the attitude even without the act some of us are guilty of breaking a ten commandment and we technically haven't even murdered anyone that's what jesus said and then he goes even further with another one he said this with thou shalt not commit adultery matthew 5 27 and 28 ye have heard that it was said by them of old time thou shalt not commit adultery 
But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. So that tells me pornography is the same as adultery. Tells me going to a strip club is the same as adultery. That tells me doing all of those different things that are very popular today is the exact same as adultery. Why? Because it doesn't start with the outward act. We are who we are on the inside first. Jesus and sometimes Paul elevates an Old Testament law in the New Testament. We interpret some of what the Old Testament says by reading the New Testament. What the New Testament tells us to do helps us to understand some of the confusing things in the Old Testament. So pretty simple, right? Pretty simple, right? All we have to do today as Christians is to do what the New Testament says. Maybe some of the Old Testament, but it's mainly repeated in the New Testament. So focus on the New Testament and do everything the New Testament says, right? No, it's still more nuanced than that. We may not follow every New Testament command, number two, but may follow the principle behind the command. So there's even commands in the New Testament that we don't have to follow. And I think some of you are going to be very glad that we don't have to follow them. (laughs) Five times in the New Testament, we are commanded to greet one another with a holy kiss. Not once, not twice, not three times, not four times, not five times, but I'm sorry, five times. We are commanded to kiss one another in a holy manner. (laughs) five times we are commanded to do that so listen if Wesley comes up to me afterwards and tries to give me a holy kiss he's going to give me I'm going to give him a holy smack can I get a witness (laughs) but even in our in our world today this is in some cultures um, if you go to Italy, right, they do the kiss on both sides of the face. Um, and this is probably what the writers were referring to. Um, it wasn't a kiss on the lips. <laughs> I don't think it was. Um, but what is the principle behind the command? I mean, could you imagine trying to do this in, during COVID? Goodness gracious. We would have made the national news. (laughs) What's the principle behind the command? The principle is to be loving, welcoming, and kind to those that you meet. How do we show this today? We don't, in our culture, show this by kissing one another. We show this by giving a warm handshake or a hug. And sometimes that's determined by how much you know a person. Handshake or a hug. The principle is obviously what is being taught and not the command. Hear me. The Old Testament has a lot of things that we have to obey. The Ten Commandments, all but nine are brought up in the New Testament. Does anybody know what the, or reinforced in the New Testament? The one that's not reinforced is the fourth. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. There are other passages in the Old Testament um, you have passages on um, uh, capital punishment, and some of those we still follow today. And so there are things in the Old Testament that we still follow today, but mainly because they're reinforced in the New Testament. 
It would be easier, right, if God just gave us a list of rights and a list of wrongs. And he told us to obey the rights and do our best not to do the wrongs. But hear me, it wouldn't be better for us. Because the Bible is not just a book of right and wrong. It's not just a list of things to do and things not to do. It is the living word of God. Why am I giving you the homework? Why do I have these little things for you to do, even though they may be hard and difficult? Because in this book are the answers to, in my opinion, every aspect of life that we go through. And we aren't going to get it by just a list of right and wrong. We need to get deeper than just the surface level meaning to understand what God is trying to communicate to us, our children, and every generation down the road. It's easier today, hear me, to argue about all of the controversial stuff that's in the Bible than it is to obey the clear commands. There are some things in your word, in the Bible that are cut and dry. There are things that children completely understand. Obey your mom and dad. Be faithful to church. Forsake not the assembly. We talked about that this morning. To be kind, to forgive, to witness. I could go on and on and on. Those are clear-cut teachings. It would be a shame if all we ever did was argue about the stuff that's not so clear. Hey, Christian, it is better to obey what we do know than to try to understand everything we don't. So today, just obey what you do know is right, and God will bless you for that. Okay, so I have you some homework. Homework, homework, homework. Aren't you glad? Don't you love that word? Homework. Matthew 7, 1 says, judge not. Does this mean that Christians are to never judge anyone else? Is it a sin to judge someone else? Extra credit. Give biblical examples and verses, if you have them, to help your answer. Another one. I like this one. A woman comes to you and says that she had a vision from the Lord, instructing her to divorce her husband and leave her family and become a missionary to Bulgaria. The husband says he hasn't received such a vision or calling. Her continuing statement to leave her family rests in her understanding of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. How would you counsel her about the vision and her intentions? How would you counsel her regarding Proverbs 3, 5, and 6? This last one I get from a sermon I watched this week. So, my activities while I was homesick give you homework. <laughs> a minister preached a message on Ezekiel 37. If you know it, it's the vision of the dry bones. Saying that although the message was initially to the nation of Israel, it could also be legitimately applied to the church. His message focused on the importance of developing relationships with others in the body of Christ. He said getting connected to the other bones. Is this a valid use of this text 
Why or why not? Thanks for listening. If you'd like to join us in person, our services are at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. every Sunday. We're located at 700 North Walnut Creek Drive in Mansfield, Texas. You can visit our website at cbcmansfield.com or follow us at Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at CBC Mansfield. Thanks again for joining us.